Um, well, if you were paying attention to that sampling of passages in our big text today, hopefully you noticed that a question is being answered, and that is this, how are God's rescued people to relate to one another, right? So these laws deal with the horizontal, God's people, how they are to relate to one another. Uh, and I really appreciate Aaron's prayer. These laws indict us. We realize quickly that we don't do these things perfectly, and because of that, we're in trouble. But there is good news, which we'll get to later on this morning. Um, the title of my sermon is Love One Another. Here's the big idea. The Lord rescues his people to resemble him in their relationships. So we, as God's rescued people, are to resemble the Lord in our relationships with one another. Does it, does it matter how we relate to one another? Yes. I, uh, I, I made you aware of this a few weeks back. I... Um, I've been coaching Luke's soccer team this year for the past, what, Luke, month, four weeks. We've had games every Saturday morning, uh, and because we're the, the youngest age division, we play at 8 a.m. every Saturday. So there's no hunting right now, which is fine. I've had a great time. I really have. I've really enjoyed my time with these kids. Uh, they're playing great. But last week, I ran into a family that I grew up with. I went to high school with their son. Uh, my daughter was, sorry, my daughter, my sister was friends with their daughter, and I haven't seen them in probably 15 years. And they came up, we're talking, we're catching up, and then they see my three children. They see Clark, Luke, and Sam, and they said, oh my goodness, those kids look just like you. And I was like, yeah, they do, don't they? The Taylor gene is strong. Um, the children look like their father. That is God's saving purpose for his rescued people, namely that his children would resemble him in their relationships with one another. God rescues us for relationships, both the vertical, right? He rescues us so that we might have a relationship with him, most importantly, but he also rescues us to be a part of a community of rescued people. And it matters how we relate to one another. In fact, how we relate to one another should resemble him. Amen? How we relate to one another should be evidence of our vertical relationship with the Lord. Let's go back, a little context. Let's go back to Exodus 19, 4-6. Now, I've already preached on this passage, but uh, this is a good starting place. So turn to Exodus 19, 4-6. The Lord says, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is saying, I rescued you, right? You're, you're my rescued people. Now, therefore, as my rescued people, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a what nation? A holy nation. God's rescued people, rescued by grace. They didn't deserve God's rescue. God rescued them, but he rescued them to be what? To be holy. So again, Israel was a rescued people, and they weren't rescued by virtue of their good works, but according to God's grace. But as his rescued people, they were called and thus expected to live differently, to be holy, 
to be God's holy representatives on earth. Now, again, remember the context. One of those bottles just fell out. <laughs> Anybody needs a bottle of water? I have three right here. So, um, Last week, I talked about the surrounding context of our passage. So if you go back to Exodus 20, 1 to 21, there we have the ten commandments. And the first half of the ten commandments deal with what? The, the vertical and the second half with the horizontal, right? So God cares how we relate to him and how we as his rescued people relate to one another. Both are important. Well, if you keep going, this next larger section, here we're going to see laws from God that deal with both the vertical and the, the horizontal. And he starts with what? What comes first? What is more important? The vertical. And from the vertical flows the horizontal. Why the horizontal? Why the horizontal? Namely, the emphasis on how God's people are to relate to and treat one another. Why does it matter? If we're saved, if we're God's people, why does it matter how we relate to one another? Why can't we just be saved and kind of do our own thing? We're right with God. That's most important. Why does it matter that we even do this, that we gather and do life together? Why is that important? Because, here's the answer, we were created to reflect God in community. Here's why. God is a community. What? Yes. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all three persons exist in perfect triune fellowship. And we were made in the image of this triune God, and thus we were made for fellowship. And the purpose of this fellowship, our community, is to reflect the Lord in this for his glory. We were, and this is a privilege, right? Yes, it's a responsibility, but it is a privilege because we were made. We've been given the privilege to reflect God in our relationships. Israel was rescued to showcase God in their relationships. The church, which is God's called out people, exists to showcase God in our relationships. And yet... So often, we neglect the horizontal. I've seen this, we've been back about a year and a half now, and having done ministry in the Pacific Northwest, there are unique challenges to that area, to that part of the U.S., and there are unique challenges here, because when I meet people, I oftentimes ask them, do you follow Jesus? Are you a follower of Christ? Oh yeah, definitely. What a stupid question. Of course I am. Okay, where do you go to church? Nowhere. Church. I don't have time. I'm I'm busy. I have a family. I have a career. Uh, When it's convenient, I go. But yeah, church? I don't have a church. But I love Jesus. But you don't love his bride? Many people that I meet these days claim to know and love Jesus, but want nothing to do with his church. They desire the vertical but neglect, or worse yet, reject the horizontal. Is that okay? No. Again, I I was with Donnie the other day and a few others in a men's Bible study, and we were talking about this same issue, and we're going through 1 John with some guys, 
And I said, Donnie, you know, how would you react if someone said, I love you, Donnie, but I can't stand Christy? Those are fighting words, right? That's my bride. We're one. How can you love me but hate my wife? And no one hates Christy. She's the best. I'm just saying hypothetically, how would you feel about that, husbands? I don't think you'd give them a thumbs up. I think you'd be hurt, upset, and rightfully so. Well, how might we summarize this large section? Uh, this is a bit different than what we've seen. We, we've covered smaller passages, even verses up till now. Now we're covering two and a half chapters. So again, don't be upset if we don't get through every single verse, but we are going to get the gist of this passage. Um, so how might we summarize Exodus 21 to 23 verse 9? Here's some questions I'm going to answer this morning. Number one, what's the purpose of these laws? These are the horizontal laws, the laws that really detail how God's rescued people are to relate to one another. Okay, that's the first question. Number two, what do these particular laws teach us about God's character? Number three, what do these laws teach us about mankind? Number four, what do these laws teach us about God's purpose? Number five, what's the problem? And if you were listening to Pastor Aaron's prayer, I think it's pretty obvious We don't do these things well, do we? Number six, what's the solution? And praise the Lord, there is a solution. It's a person. Number seven, where do we see this same emphasis on the horizontal in the New Testament? And number eight, and I'm so thankful for number eight, what do we have to look forward to? And if you're a believer, the answer is what? Much. There's much to look forward to. All right, so let's get started. We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, First question, again, what do these laws concern? Well, slavery, restitution, and social justice. Now, we need to make sure that we understand these terms within their original cultural context. Slavery then, in the ancient Near East among God's people was not the same as slavery in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. Slavery in Exodus 21 was more akin to employment. Slaves had inherent dignity. They were not slaves for life. They were to be treated with respect and cared for, and if not, the owners would be what? They'd be punished. Furthermore, people could not be stolen and sold or forced into slavery. The punishment for such an offense was death. The slavery mentioned in Exodus 21 is not the same as the slavery experienced by Israel in Egypt. Because again, what was Israel? They were slaves being harshly mistreated by the Egyptians. They're crying out and God hears their cries. So it doesn't make sense that God would rescue them from harsh slavery only to bring them back into harsh slavery. So what exactly are we seeing in Exodus 21? This is really important because many in our culture today are going to say what? See, I told you. The Bible condones slavery. Therefore, let's throw out the entire book. Not so fast. Because such a knee-jerk reaction is often made without considering the historical background of Exodus 21. One brother writes, this is T. Desmond Alexander. You can just start calling me C. Andrew Taylor. Why do people do that? I don't know. Don't call me that, by the way. (laughs) But he writes, 
it is widely accepted. So scholars agree that this passage, Exodus 21, refers to what's called debt slavery that occurs due to economic hardship. In such circumstances, an individual might choose to become an indentured servant to secure food, clothing, and accommodation. In return, the indentured servant is expected to work for a period of time, normally a maximum of seven years, according to the regulations of this passage. So again, this was not forced slavery, characterized by mistreatment and abuse. It was not permanent. It offered security. And it wasn't uncommon for a slave in this context to re-up, right, to extend their contract. And the laws, and if you, again, go back and read this passage, but the laws provided by the Lord were to make sure that this system of indentured servitude was properly regulated and the servants themselves protected. Next, we have laws about restitution. These laws, this is a big section, begin Exodus 21.12 and continue all the way to Exodus 22, verse 20. So Exodus 21.12 all the way to 22.20. These case laws were designed to guide the Israelites in making appropriate rulings regarding offenses committed by individuals. Here's some examples. Exodus 21.12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to what? But to death. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Exodus 21.22-24. We read this already, but let's read it again. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Um, I'm going to give you a term that I think is helpful. These case laws are characterized by what's called moral symmetry, from which we get the principle, let the punishment fit the crime. Or better yet, if you know Latin, lex talionis, which means laws of retaliation, eye for an eye. This requires the punishment to be no more or no less than what the wrongdoing deserves. What these laws reveal is God's desire for wrongs to be made right. God's commitment to justice. And again, I hate that this word justice has become a bad word for many Christians today. This is a biblical word, and it simply means God's commitment to make wrongs right. Amen? That's a good thing, because only God can do that perfectly. So point number one. Now we're moving, all right? Number one. What's the purpose of these laws, these horizontal laws? To reveal God's will, his values, so that his rescued people embody these values for the sake of being a healthy, God-honoring community. A community built on justice, doing what's right. A community committed to reflecting the Lord 
in their love and care for one another. Finally, we have the laws of social justice. These laws were designed to curb, or better yet, to prevent sinful behavior within God's rescued community. Does God care about sin? Of course he does. And we're going to see why here shortly. These laws, this is the last category that we see in our passage. These laws revealed God's holy standard and thus served as a call for God's people to live holy lives in community together. Now, the main message in this passage, our chapters, is this. Hey, Israel, live as God's rescued people. (laughs) Hey, Israel, live as God's rescued people. Be holy and honor the Lord in your treatment of one another. These case laws, these social justice laws, warn against fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, sorcery, idolatry. They call for the protection of the weak and the marginalized, the abused, orphans, widows, the sojourners. And they further warn against deception, theft, and murder. Really, if you're paying attention, what we see in these chapters is a feeling out of the Ten Commandments, especially the second half. The Ten Commandments are alluded to and referenced throughout. God's rescued people are called to love God and to love one another. In fact, we could argue, and from Scripture no less, that the latter is the evidence of the former. Remember John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, when you love each other the way I've loved you, you prove to be my what? My disciples. All right. If you pay careful attention to these chapters, you're going to see that every major relationship within a culture is addressed. What are these relationships? Well, these would include relationships between employees and their workers, or in this context, masters and their slaves, relationships between parents and their children, and relationships between husbands and wives. These relationships make up a what? A community. And in order for a community to be healthy, these relationships must be right and in line with God's word. Here's the bad news. (laughs) These laws reveal God's monumental moral standard. One that all humans have broke time and time again. Who's kept these things perfectly? Raise your hand. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not funny. Because these laws indict us. They prove our guilt before God. They bring to light our guilt before a holy God. These laws convict us. They reveal the holiness of God and our unholiness. The righteousness of God and our unrighteousness. And more than anything, and this is, this is the good news, more than anything, these, light, these laws bring to light in a blinding way our need for a, a substitute or a savior. Now, why all the laws and all the punishment? Now, some people get frustrated with this section. You read Leviticus, so many laws. Why all the punishment? Come on, Lord, Why? Because the Lord cares about sin and wrongdoing. Because the Lord is what? He's holy. And therefore, sin must be what? Must be punished. 
This was at the heart of the fear of the Lord, namely a fear of offending the Lord by living contrary to his word. Number two, number two, what do these chapters teach us about God's character? These next three points are going to be quick, so listen up. What do these laws teach us about God's character? Whenever you read and study the Old Testament, a great, and even the New Testament, whenever you read the Bible, a great question to ask is this. What does this particular passage teach us about God's character? What do we learn about God in our text? Well, let's answer that question together. Number one, the Lord is just. He's just. That's Exodus 23, 1 to 9. The Lord is just. Aren't you thankful? What if, what if God was capricious? Just one day, unjust the next. How would you feel about that? You know, the, the gods of the Greeks, if they had a bad day, everyone knew about it, right? They were what? Inconsistent. God is consistent, and he's consistently just. He always does what is right. Amen? He always does what is good because he is righteous and good. The Lord is just. Number two, the Lord cares for the weak and the needy. That's Exodus 22, 21 to 24. Aren't you thankful that God cares for the weak and the needy? Who falls into that category? All of us, right? Number three, the Lord values life. He values life. Therefore, so should who? So should we. And that's Exodus 21, verse 12. And number four, the Lord is holy. That's Exodus 22, 28, and verse 31. Therefore, we who belong to the Lord should strive for justice, what is right. We should care. Again, if we belong to the Lord and the Lord is just, we who belong to him should care about justice. If God cares for the weak and the needy, we who belong to him should care for the weak and the needy. If God values life, we who belong to him, if you belong to God, if he's your Lord and King, we should value what? We should value life. And if God is holy, we who belong to him should strive for what? For holiness. And we're going to come back to this. Number three, what do these chapters teach us about mankind? Well, listen, the fact that these laws are even necessary reveal mankind's proclivity to sin. What are we good at, all of us? What are we good at? What do we do by nature? We are sinners. We didn't have to learn it. It comes by nature, right? It's just it's part of our DNA. It's part of our fallen nature. We are sinners. We have a proclivity to sin. This was seen last week in the mention of burnt offerings and peace offerings. The purpose of the sacrificial system was to provide atonement for sin in the community of God's people. These, why were these sacrifices even necessary? Because Israel was sinful. These laws, too, were necessary due to Israel's sinfulness and further work to reveal their sinfulness and thus their need for a, a substitute. Number four. Number four. What do these chapters teach us about God's purpose? What is God's purpose for his people according to these chapters? God's rescuing purpose involves a rescued people, and he intends for his rescued people to be a what kind of people? A 
holy people. Now, why does that matter? That we're holy because God's desire is to dwell with his people. And what is God? He is holy. Therefore, we must be what? Holy. There's always a horizontal component to God's salvation plan, for his plan always includes a people. In fact, one cannot talk about God's plan of salvation without talking about his what? His people. In his book on the church, uh, the, the elders are reading this right now. We have it in the book nook. It's called The Loveliest Place. It's by Dustin Binge. And he reminds us in the book of God's desire to dwell with his people. Isn't that wonderful? I, I try to make this uh, contrast uh, typically on Wednesday nights as we're going through the Psalms. We, we've talked about in Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. He's with us, right? That, that's the great blessing of salvation is we get to be with God. But the God of the deists, right, if you know anything about the deists, they believe that God simply created and then peaced out, went on permanent holiday. No desire to be with his people, no desire to know his people, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible made us to be with him. But the God of the Bible is what? He's holy. And what are we not? Holy. But again, let's just kind of track this theme, God's desire to dwell with his people. Where does it start, by the way? Where does God begin to dwell with his people? Who are the first two to dwell with God? Adam and Eve in the garden. Who else? Moses in Israel. I mean, again, God comes down, Exodus 3, burning bush, speaks to Moses. God rescues his people. He guides them by a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And then what we're going to see, kind of the climax of Exodus, Exodus 40, after the tabernacle is put together, God's Shekinah glory, his holy presence comes down in the midst of his people. We see it again with the temple. Where do we see it most clearly? In the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And those who trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit, God living inside of us. Amen? God desires to be with his people. But what does his presence demand? This is the catch-22, right? His presence demands holiness, and we are not what? We're not holy. Even if you think you're really good, you're not good enough. You've broken God's law, and because God is holy, we can't, by our own nature, in and of ourselves, do enough to merit God's favor. Therefore, we need a what? We need a, a substitute. So what is the Lord's heart for his people? Again, why all these laws? What is God's heart for his people? Holiness. Exodus twenty two thirty one. 31, this is the key verse in our passage. I'm going to unpack this quickly. The Lord says, you shall be consecrated to me. Oh. This grounds everything else in our passage. This is the foundation. What does this mean exactly? The word, you ready? Kodesh. Kodesh. It denotes set-apartness. Holiness. Even sacredness. But what, is, what, what stood out in that verse? 
he doesn't just say, you shall be consecrated. What is the prepositional phrase that follows? You shall be consecrated, two words, to me. The prepositional phrase, to me, is everything. Israel wasn't just called to be set apart, but set apart specifically to the, to the Lord. Why? Because Israel belonged to the Lord. They had been purchased and rescued by the Lord. And as the Lord's, they were to be fully set apart and committed to Him and His glorious purposes. The Lord's desire for His rescued people is for them to be set apart to Him. Again, why is holiness so important for God's rescued people? Because God dwells among His rescued people. Therefore, His people must be holy. In fact, that is the glorious goal and prize of rescue. God's rescued people get who? We get God. We get to be with Him. But His people must be holy because He is what? He's holy. Do we got that? Okay. I can say it again a few different ways. Furthermore, relationships between image bearers were to reflect God's relationship with his people. That's what we see in this big passage. The way God's people are to relate to one another should mirror or reflect the way God relates to us. We see that in the New Testament as well, in the Gospels, right? As God's people were called to honor and respect the Lord, so too children were called to honor and respect their, their parents. It's Exodus 20, 15 and verse 17. As the Lord graciously cared for his rescued people, so too masters were to care for their slaves, their workers. As the Lord cared for his people, weak and delicate as they were, so too God's people were to call or to care for the weak and the marginalized in their presence, the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. In some, God's people were to treat one another the way the Lord had treated them, with care, compassion, love, justice, and mercy. Now, what was at stake as it concerned how God's people related to one another? The honor and reputation of the Lord. And this brings us to number five, which is the problem. Mankind is unable to live this way. In fact, we are more inclined to the opposite. It is impossible. Everybody say impossible. It is impossible to meet God's holy standard. It is impossible. Paul, if you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, it functions much like an indictment. Jew and Gentile both fall under God's judgment. None of us are righteous, Paul says. Romans 3, 10 to 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All, not some, not even the majority, but all. How many is all? All is all. It's everyone, it's all-encompassing. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Oh, but Chris, that's not fair. Yeah, it is fair. We are sinners. None of us does good. No, not one. All of us have fallen short, right? Romans 3.23. I hope you've been paying attention the last few weeks because what have we seen? We've seen good news. 
What we've seen over the past two weeks is we need a mediator. We need a substitute, which brings us to our solution. Number six, what is the solution? Christ and his perfect life. Christ and his perfect life. We tend to emphasize his death, which we should, but what about Christ before he died? The gospel doesn't just start with his death. What's assumed? Otherwise, his death would be meaningless. If Christ had sinned, could his death cover our sins? Say it in Spanish. No, good job. He had to live a perfect life. That is the debt that we owe God that we simply can't pay. But who paid it for us? Who lived the perfect life we could not live? Jesus. I love Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Number verse 4. In order that, here it is, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law? Did we? Who did? Jesus. Christ not only died for us, but he lived for us perfectly, adhering to, obeying, and fulfilling the law of God. What we could not do, he did perfectly and for us in our place. Amen? What we could not do, he did perfectly for us in our place. Guys, This is a heavy passage. The law indicts us, revealing again God's holiness and our unholiness, and thus drives us to Christ, the Savior King, who lived for us and died for us. Only in Christ can we be counted as righteous. And not only, and this is so good, not only does God give us His Son, to provide forgiveness and reconciliation, but the Holy Spirit to make us holy for our holy God. Amen? Number seven. Where do we see this emphasis on the horizontal in the New Testament with the church? Is there an emphasis on the horizontal in the New Testament? We call them the what? There's about 70 of them in the New Testament. The one and others. There are 71 another commands in the New Testament. What I always say is this, you can't do the one another's without what? Others, right? You can't do the one another's without others. I don't need the church. Let me ask you this, brother. How's it going with the one another's? Silence. No one is going to say to a hermit, that dude is so loving. Bro, have you seen Joe love? No, because... There's no one around him. Oh, yeah. Those who trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit for holy living in community, namely for doing the one another's in the church. Let me give you two. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing what follows, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up 
one another (laughs) to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging, once again, one another, and all the more as the day draws near. Why are the one another so important? Well, you could say, one, they're commanded, right? I mean, if God tells us to do something, we should, we should do it, because he's our king, amen? So we're commanded to do the one another's, but these are how we honor the Lord, and they're how we attract the world to Jesus, and they are how we help each other prepare for life forever with Christ. God gives us the church as part of our process of sanctification, amen? We get the Spirit we get the Lord, we get the Holy Spirit, we get the Lord's ear, right? But we also get the, we get the church, we get one another. And as we do life together, we are preparing one another for life forever with the King. The one another's are how we incarnate the Lord, making the invisible God visible. The Lord is to be seen in our love for one another. A quick lesson from 1 John, because I'm going through 1 John with some guys right now. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Again, when we love each other, when we do the one another's, we make the invisible God visible to the watching world. Amen? We put Christ on display. 1 John 4.19-21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and this goes back to the Hey, I love, listen, I I love you, but I I can't stand your wife. Let's go. I I, I wouldn't say that. I don't think I would. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his what? Brother. You love God, you got to love God's people. Which requires what? Doing life together. Investing in one another. Knowing each other. Serving one another. Gathering together. Stirring, the Greek there in Hebrews 10, 24, literally means to provoke one another to love and good works. I say this a lot, and I hope you got it. The purpose of the gospel is not just to provide forgiveness, but transformation as well. In fact, according to 1 John 4, 19-21, the love of Christ, once applied by the Holy Spirit, leads to what? Christ-like love. That's what John means when he says that his love is perfected in us. That comes from a Greek word, teleao. Telos in Greek means the end of something or the purpose of something or the goal of something. The goal of Christ's love is to transform us to love like Christ. Amen? But what does that require? that we're a part of a a church, a community of God's people. And again, this is evidence of our salvation. More than that, this is the goal of our salvation. For when we love one another like Jesus, we show that we're his disciples and this for his glory. Here's some practice steps. Number one, pursue justice in the church. Now, what does that mean? Pursue justice in the church. One way we do this is by doing church discipline. I'm not encouraging us to go on a witch hunt. That's not the purpose of church discipline. It means that we should simply address sin in the community of God's people with gentleness 
and call believers in the church to repent and to trust in Jesus, to strive for holiness so that the name of Jesus is represented well. Amen? Don't you care about the king's reputation? Number two, care for the weak and needy. Now, should we care for the weak and needy outside of our church? Of course we should, right? There is definitely a place for mercy ministries, and we support those in Lufkin and beyond. What I would say, kind of a caveat that I would add, is whenever we do that, the gospel has to be present, all right? Like when the kids and I were driving, we see a homeless person, you know, we'll oftentimes grab them Whataburger, but I want to get out of the truck, and I want to sit down and say, hey, man, this is important. This is an important need, right? A physical, tangible need. But there's a, there's a more important need than this. At that moment, we start thinking, what is that? It's your need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, if we're going to do mercy ministry outside the church, it needs to be coupled with a clear presentation of the, the gospel. But we must also care for the weak and needy in our church. Amen? How dare we say we love the world but don't even love one another? We start here. So invest in the hurting and the suffering and the struggling in the church. I honestly think we do a good job of that. I really do. We, we see that every week when there's a need in the church, Ashton, you and some of the girls, I feel like meals are just being sent out. That's happening. Praise God. Let's make sure it continues to happen. Value life. Value life. Number three, fight for the unborn. Give to the Pregnancy Help Center. Pray for the unborn, evangelize the lost so that they value the unborn, and consider adoption. Number four, pursue holiness. Take sin seriously and be at work killing it. Behold and become like the Son of God by beholding the Son of God in the the Word of God. Seek out accountability. If you struggle with sin, call out for help. Call out to the Lord, but also call out to a fellow believer. And then lastly here, love the church. Love the church. Prioritize this gathering. Do life with fellow believers. We need the church, amen? We need the church. We cannot do the one another's without the the church. We cannot make the invisible God visible without the... We're the body. He's the head, but we're the body. Again, the church is one of God's gracious gifts to God's people in order to make us holy. Number eight, final question. What do we have to look forward to? Is the church God's rescued and redeemed people? Spirit-filled? Perfect yet? No. Do we still struggle with these things? Loving each other the way God wants us to? Will that struggle endure forever? No. What do we have to look forward to? 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. One day, we will be made morally perfect. Our love for each other will be perfect like the son's love for us. Amen? We struggle now. It's not perfect now, right? But one day it will be. We await the perfect. 
We await the fullness of God's kingdom. We await our glorification. And friends, if you are in Christ, this reality will one day be. Until then, like Paul, may we strive for resurrection life now. And by the Spirit, we can. I was going to conclude one way, but I'm going to do something different. Can you imagine... What is our debt right now as a nation? Like a million bucks? It's in the trillions, okay? It's a lot of money. Can you imagine, and this is a hypothetical, it would never happen, but can you imagine that you wake up one morning and you get online, Bank of America, if that's your bank, and you see the nation's debt applied to your account? Ha! Haley, what happened? What is this? I've never seen so many zeros. What do we do? Sorry. Sorry, this, that's just the way it is. But you know what? Maybe we could put together some GoFundMe pages and who knows? I got a lot of billionaire friends. We'll get that paid off. It's possible. It is possible. I'm serious. It's improbable. Highly unlikely. But it's still possible. What's impossible is the debt we owe God. We owe God a perfect life. And friends, you can get all the GoFundMe pages, you can can call all the people you want to, but listen, that debt we cannot pay because all of us are sinners. Even if you sin one time, which all of us would agree we have, we sinned at least one time today already. That debt we can never pay, given a million lifetimes. We can never pay it. We're in deep water. We're in deep trouble. God demands. Yes, he deserves, but he demands a perfect life. Do you understand that? And that is a debt that none of us can pay, but one has. Jesus. As our substitute, Jesus lived the life we simply cannot live. A perfect life, fulfilling the law, obeying God's holy, perfect standard perfectly in our place. And not only did he fulfill that standard, but he took the punishment that we deserve because all of us have broken it. He's not a lawbreaker. He's a law fulfiller. We're lawbreakers. And yet Jesus, because of his grace and love and mercy, laid down his life for us. So not only did he pay our debt, he took our punishment. Amen? And to to show, to demonstrate, to prove that the cross worked. Three days later, he came back from the dead. The great vindication. The son is alive. Amen? And those who trust in him are promised forgiveness for how long? How long is that debt wiped away for? Forever. What kind of life do we have now? Eternal life with who? With God. So I would entreat you, listen, (laughs) you might be a really good person, but you're not good enough. None of us are. We have all sinned against a holy God. I love the law. I do because, one, it reveals God's holiness. Number two, because it reveals our sinfulness, it drives us to the Savior. It indicts us and we realize, I can't save myself. I can do nothing to save myself, only Jesus. So trust in him, treasure him, follow him, turn from your sin, 
trust in Jesus, ask him to forgive you and to come into your life. If you need help with that today, if you're like, man, I want to follow Jesus, where do I start? Come talk to me, Pastor Aaron, maybe a friend who brought you, but listen, he's worth it, amen? And only he can save. Let's go to prayer now and thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for the perfect Savior, perfect substitute, perfect mediator, Jesus, your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for your perfect life, that the law that weighs heavily over us, the law that we cannot obey perfectly because we're sinners. Jesus, you fulfilled in our place. And not only did you obey the law perfectly for us, you died for us so that we could be forgiven if we trust in you. If we acknowledge that we are sinners, if we acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to rescue and redeem ourselves, only you, Jesus. So I pray that all of us in this room would say, yes, amen, we trust you, Jesus. And I pray that all of us in this room who have trusted in Jesus, that we would be willing and desirous to take this good news to the world around us, calling unbelievers to leave their sin behind and trust in Jesus for salvation. God, we love you. We commit this time in your word to you. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply your word to our hearts and lives. Make us more like you for your glory and our good and for the salvation of the lost. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.